Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we conclude our series, Life Lessons from King David, with a message entitled, Finishing in Faith. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 19 to 24 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. these last two weeks, what I have attempted to do is to give a brief survey of the life of David. I've wanted to give an honest and accurate portrait of the life of Israel's great and flawed king. Now, this is the man whose leadership forged a nation with defensible borders. This is also the man whose throne was eventually to become the throne of the Messiah. Jesus, as you know, is the son of David, and he has inherited David's throne. But David is also the man who established Jerusalem as the city designated for the worship of the one true God. In the end of the day, the city of God will be called the new Jerusalem. And so for all time, Jerusalem will be the center of the new heavens and the new earth. David's capture of the city is a prefiguring of God's agenda for subduing all creation under his reign. David really does in so many ways open the door for the mighty redemptive acts of God. And for that reason, it is really fitting to see him as the forerunner to the Messiah. You know, Psalm 78 is a Psalm of Asaph. And I say that to remind you, it's not a Psalm of David. It's one of the longer Psalms that has 72 verses. And it's a historical Psalm, which means that it retells the story of Israel's history in poetic form. And the purpose of the Psalm is worship. Worship is the purpose of the entire Psalter, so saying that's not really a surprise. But in our day, the worship of God's people has become more narrow and focused than we find in the Psalms. And as an aside, I I offer a critique for much of our worship today, and I mean to offer it in a kind and gracious manner. I want to say, look, it's not wrong to sing those subjective reflections that we have of our relationship with God. I mean, it's not wrong to sing, your grace still amazes me, or even, my Jesus, I love thee. We should sing about that, and we should glory in the truth that we have been invited into a personal relationship with our God, having, you know, been adopted as sons and daughters of God. But we need to sing about more. We need to sing about the deeds of God in history. We should sing about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, about the God who parted the Red Sea, about the waters of Meribah, about manna from heaven and how God drove out strong and mighty nations in order to give his people an inheritance. We need to sing about the God who chose David to establish a kingdom that would rule forever and ever. Now then, back to Psalm 78, which is a historical song of worship, and I'd like to read the last three verses of the psalm, verses 70 to 72. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes, He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. See, there can be no doubt that David did guide Israel with a skillful hand. He unified a divided nation. He defeated Israel's enemies. He established Jerusalem as the center for worship. But we've also seen that David was most definitely a flawed king. His sin with Bathsheba and the consequences of his neglect of righteously leading his family eventually began to undo so many of the gains that he had made. On more than one occasion, I've heard people talk about finishing well. 
And they mean by that, that as we get into our later years, that these years are a time for reflection and repentance, for renewing our zeal, for leaving a lasting legacy for the next generation. So how does David fare in his later years? Now, I say that because this is a crucial question. Will David lapse into despair because of his many and great sins, or will he renew his faith? It would be an interesting study if we contrasted the life of David with the life of his son Solomon. Both men started out well. Solomon, I think, actually managed to extend the borders of Israel so that the nation looked exactly like the nation that God had promised to Abraham. Furthermore, Solomon established peace with his neighbors, something David had not completely accomplished. And finally, the promise that the world would be blessed through Abraham's blessing seems to, in some form, be taking shape in Solomon's day. You know, as Solomon built the temple, he prayed that when a foreigner comes and seeks the God of Israel in this place, that God would hear their prayer and that they would go home and that they would announce that there is a living God in Israel and that this influence of the one true God would spread out from Jerusalem and fill the earth. And it was starting to happen. And furthermore, Solomon's wisdom literature, it's recorded in the Proverbs, was filling the land and showing God's people that they could not only be the righteous people of God, but they could live day by day in the wisdom that God provided. So if you've never read the Bible, you could be forgiven if you had read to that point, if you then believe that this story would just continue to get more positive until David's throne would fill the earth. But then just like his father David, Solomon's heart was led astray by the trappings of power. Solomon was more sinful than he knew. He built a military with chariots, something the law of God forbade. He extended his harem to such an extent that David would not have imagined such a thing. 1,000 wives and concubines. And then in the end, because Solomon's many wives came from the nations, they brought the worship of their idols into Jerusalem, something the first and second commandment most strictly prohibited as a vile thing. And then in the end, Solomon's heart was led astray. Did Solomon end well? No, he did not. As far as we know, Solomon died having abandoned faithfulness to the God he purported to serve. And after him, the decline and destruction of Israel was simply a matter of time. No king was able to halt the decline. Well, how about David? How did he end his life? Did he finish well or not? After all, when we last left him, he had put down a cruel and divisive civil war at the cost of his own treasonous son. How does David approach the end of his days? You know, our study today is only a survey, and we can, in a short period of time, describe all the details of the last years of David's life. But, but let's see if we can get the highlights and then end where 2 Samuel does with a remarkable incident in David's life which really does sum up the nature of the life that he lived. So we begin with the events immediately after the civil war ended and Absalom has been killed. 2 Samuel 19 verses 8b to 10 says, Now Israel fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? You know, like all civil wars, the bitterness between those who opposed the king and those who supported the king cannot be so easily dismantled. But David seems to revert back to a pattern that had made him so successful when he was a younger man. You remember, he obtained the kingdom after the death of Ishbosheth. 
Back then, we saw David hard at work in providing a basis upon which the country could be united. And now we see him at it again. David's first move seems almost impossible to imagine. Perhaps it was anger that led him to make this move, but he deposes Joab as the commander of his military, and then he replaces him with a man named Amasa. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because it is. Amasa was the commander over the treasonous army that had followed Absalom. Joab had defeated Amasa on the battlefield, and now Amasa was about to replace Joab? You know, at the outset, that seems shocking. It would, in terms we can understand, be like, you know, after the Civil War in the U.S., Abraham Lincoln were to replace Ulysses S. Grant with Robert E. Lee. I mean, such a thing would be scandalous, to say the least. Indeed, it's not long after that that a second civil war does break out and Amasa is hopelessly inadequate in providing a quick response. And then Joab does what Joab always did. He simply kills Amasa, takes control of the army, and makes quick work of the latest enemy of David. But in this we see that it's not well in David's kingdom. But David seems to be forgiving his enemies and he is attempting to restore his kingdom. And by the time we get to 2 Samuel 23, David is now an old man, and the entire chapter is, in a very powerful way, a restatement of David's life. The chapter contains a long psalm, and it's very similar and almost identical to Psalm 18. I'm reading 2 Samuel 23, verses 33 to 37, because it does capture David's understanding of his remarkable lifelong success. David says, This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure in the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. You know, in a sense, David is summing up his life. If there were any great successes, it was, says David, because God was in it. If there were any failures and there were sin, it was plain that it was my own. He made that plain in Psalm 51. You remind us every day, you challenge us to ensure that the calling of God to provide excellence in Bible teaching remains uncompromised. And that's exactly the mark we're striving to hit every day. Recently, we received this note from a listener. Thank you for staying true to the gospel regardless of changing times. We're so grateful, and it's with humility we recognize the trust our listeners place in this ministry. The need to share the gospel, the good news, trustworthy Bible teaching is critical, and your gracious gifts allow this to take place. On behalf of every member of our ministry team, thank you for what you've already done, and in advance, thank you for continuing to stand with us. To discover all the Bible resources available to you or to offer a financial gift to support these Bible teaching programs, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. First Samuel 23 begins with the words, Now these are the last words of David. And then verse 5 wonderfully sums up his remarkable life. David says, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. 
and we might have expected, therefore, that the story of David's life would now be over. The rest of the chapter is a listing of David's mighty men, men who have distinguished themselves in battle, and men who should be remembered as having served their God and blessed their nation. But then, for reasons that are not immediately explained, the author of 2 Samuel, who should have, at least so we think, have ended the story right there, David has now said his last words, and so we have to assume that he's died. But instead, chapter 24 now gives us a flashback of an incident in David's life at a time, well, we can't be sure of the time. But let's read the context, and as we do, it will become quite apparent that this is a very curious incident to have been included right here. 2 Samuel 24 verse 1 begins by saying, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. Now, the text doesn't tell us why, but whatever the sin was, there was a time when God was very angry, not just with David, but with Israel as a whole. And during this time, and here's where it gets fascinating, we are then told that in his anger, God incited David to act in a way in which he took a census of Israel and Judah. Now, it's clear from the book of Numbers that God doesn't object to the taking of a census. And by the way, I've tried sometimes painfully to make that point while I was pastoring. You know, I was normally quite careful to make sure that I knew how large the congregation was and whether it was growing or declining or whether it was attracting a younger generation. On more than one occasion, someone would approach me then and they'd say, you know, David sinned against God by numbering the people. And I would do my best to smile. And then I'd say, did you know there's an entire book in the Bible by the name of Numbers? And it contains very large and massive numbering of the people, and it's ordered by God. So let's ask, why was David's numbering of the people a sin here? And the answer seems to be that the sin lay in his numbering, not of the whole population, but according to verse 9, it's a numbering of the military. And the problem with numbering the military is a problem of proclaiming his power rather than for David to trust in the power of God. See, at all times, even though Israel was to have an army, the army was to be so constructed that it would never be possible to deny that the real power came from God. But David seems to be focusing on trusting in his own rise to power. You know, what's also fascinating is that when First Chronicles mentions this story, the author there says that it was Satan who had incited David to act in this way. But here in 1 Samuel 24, our author here says it was God who incited David. So who's right? Well, the answer is they're both right. The Lord uses Satan as a secondary agent to bring about his purposes. And oh, wow, that in itself is a weighty theme, but I do need to move on. So remember the sequence. Israel as a nation has sinned in some way. David is incited to proclaim his trust in his own power rather than trusting in God. In consequence, David and God talk, and David says, I have sinned, and God agrees. The prophet Gad then comes to David with a word from God. You have a choice, says Gad. You have to pick one. Israel will either receive three years of famine, or three months of being defeated by their enemy, or three days of pestilence, that is, three days of a pandemic. And David responds by saying, oh God, don't let us be defeated by our enemies. I choose three days of pestilence, three days of disease. Well, then the disease is far worse than David would have imagined. Immediately, 70,000 men die, and David is astonished, and he's filled with grief. Graves have covered the land, and then David has a vision. 
He sees a great and powerful angel standing over Jerusalem. His hand is stretched out and he's ready to strike down the entire city. 2 Samuel 24, 16 to 17. And the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it. The Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Eruana the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And then the prophet Gad again approaches David. Go by the threshing floor of the man named Aruana. He's a Jebusite and the threshing floor is on the hill just outside the walls of Jerusalem, right where the angel of God is standing with an outstretched sword in his hand. Now, threshing floors were often located on the tops of hills, and that's because they were subject to winds, and it would be a good place to throw grain into the air and separate the heavier wheat from the chaff. You know, the the chaff would blow away in the wind. So David hurries to the property of the man who owns this threshing floor up high, and it overlooks Jerusalem, and he offers to buy it. So from there, let's keep reading verses 21 to 23. And Aruana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruana gives the king. And Aruana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. You know, evidently, Aruana is also aware of the presence of the angel. Take it, he says, make the sacrifice, and may God forgive our sins and accept our confession. But David is not quick to accept the free offer of the land. No, he says to Aruana, it would be completely inappropriate for me to offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. If I'm going to sacrifice, if I'm going to worship, and if I'm going to confess my sins and seek the Lord's favor, this act of worship is going to be expensive for me. David knew what some of us don't. I think for all of us who worship God, the message from David should penetrate our hearts. If you're gonna approach a holy God and come to him for mercy and grace, then the act of worship ought to cost you a lot in giving money and in sacrifice. Oh, I do wish God's people would grasp this most basic concept. Jesus himself said that if we come after him, we must give up all things and deny ourselves and follow him. And so David buys the land for a premium and sets up an altar and offers up burnt offerings and peace offerings as prescribed by the law of Moses. And then says our text, the Lord responded and the plague came to an immediate end. So why is this chapter included here at the end? Well, for one, the threshing floor that David bought and the one on which he sacrificed is the very spot of ground where 1,000 years before David, Abraham had once stood with a knife in his hand and his son Isaac tied to an altar. He was about to offer up his son, and then God intervened and saved Abraham's son. And then after David, Solomon would build the temple on that very spot where sacrifices and offerings would be made for the ongoing sin of the people. And then another thousand years later, Jesus would come to that spot and lay down his life for the sins of the whole world. But very well. And yet, why does the author of 2 Samuel end the story of David in the way that he does? Well, the answer is that this story is a proper way to encapsulate the entire life of David. I mean, who was David? Yeah, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a sinner. And there had to be grace from God. 
And the angel of the Lord would have wiped out David along with the entire people of God unless an altar of sacrifice had been found. God provided an altar, a place of sacrifice where David sins and Israel sins. And indeed, we who read this so many years later, our sins are atoned for as well. That's the story of David. It's a great way to summarize his life. He was a man who was loved by God, but he was also a man who proved more sinful than he had ever imagined. And that's us as well. You know, my father on his own deathbed asked that the tombstone might have an engraving on it that said, here lies a great sinner who found grace. Well, we simply wrote, saved by grace. Indeed, instead of expressing disdain for David's sin, we should be expressing an appreciation that our lives are so much like David. We're greater sinners than we had ever imagined. Yet God has had mercy through the sacrifice of Jesus, and hence the angel who brought death stayed his hand from us, and we were saved even as he was. That's the lesson that we are to learn from studying the life of David. Yes, he is Israel's great king, and he does prefigure the coming of the Messiah. But he is also Israel's flawed king, just like us. The king became great because God had blessed him. The king was forgiven his sins because God had sent a sacrifice. And on that sacrifice, he had tied on the altar his own dear son. And that, my friends, and the knowledge of that is what it means to finish well. It means to finish knowing that there is a sacrifice that is atoned for our sins. Thanks, John. This has been a wonderful series, but a good time, I think, to reflect back on these words of David. Tell us what you think when he said, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. You know, Ben, that that beautiful quote, I mean, I have a lovely memory of that. Um, years ago, a missionary speaker had come to church where I was pastoring, and, and he had delivered the entire sermon on that, and, um, you know, the call to sacrifice and give our lives, either in mission or even in giving or something else, but that we should never approach the Lord and simply say, this won't cost me anything. In fact, it's going to cost me everything. Um, so, you know, I've talked to, um, you know, all sorts of, I, one missionary couple that I talked to said, you know, when the first of their children felt the call to missions and left home, um, they said they felt that pain so deeply. And yet as a young child, they had dedicated that child to the work of the Lord. So uh, we offer to the Lord everything. What our service does, it costs everything. John, thanks so much for a wonderful series. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Every month, Back to the Bible Canada sends out a ministry update email. This email includes links to the newest Bible teaching resources, special messages from Dr. Neufeld and others, and an exclusive five-minute audio program called Five and Five. This program is my opportunity to ask Dr. Neufeld, Phil, and other members of the team five insightful questions in only five minutes. All this exclusive to our monthly update email, sent out once a month, and you can have it sent to you by simply signing up at Back to the Bible .ca, or if you'd rather, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. And when you're signing up, make sure to take a look at all of the free ministry resources available, our bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine, and the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app, just to name a few. 
For more information or to support this ministry financially, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.